Hello and welcome to this week's Making Passenger podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Tom. This week we're speaking with Giuseppe Salazzo, Head of Data at the DFT. Two years ago, Passenger embarked on an R&D project which led us to meeting Giuseppe. The dataset in question is undergoing review and potential redesign by his team. In this episode, we catch up with him to find out how he's getting on. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Giuseppe. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, Thank you for inviting me. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit around some of the work that the DFT are doing um, on all sorts of data sets, but sort of most specifically around NAPTAN and things that are included in that. For around 10 years, we've been working with data sets that the DFT are responsible for. Um, And as of any long-standing big data sets, there are a lot of stakeholders. And so there are bound to be some kind of inaccuracies and things like that. Back in 2018, we began to do some R&D work with a transport data set called NAPTAN. And it became apparent that it wasn't quite as accurate as we needed it to be. And so when we pulled at that thread, we began to learn a lot about some of the very real challenges that a technology firm like ours has when working with open data. So it's quite important, I think, that everyone understands exactly what NAPTAN is and why it's important. So Hmm. could you perhaps give us a bit of detail around that? Yeah, so NAPTAN is pretty much a national data set of any point used by people to access public transport. So railway stations, airports, ports, uh, and predominantly bus stops. So there's about 450,000 bus stops in NAPTAN, which constitute the uh, 95% of what NAPTAN is. So it's basically yeah any point from which a passenger can join or leave public transport together with information about the location of, of that point. And it's a bit of a, you know, relic of the past in many ways. So NAPTAN was first set up when a website called Transport Direct was, was alive. So this was a website set up by, by government to enable journey planning. Uh, and this was switched off in 2014 when you know, basically government moved on to uh, saying, okay, we shouldn't be providing journey planning, but we'll still maintain this, this data set for everyone. So it's still used as a, for a number of, um, of, of functions. So predominantly for electronic bus registration. Uh, it's also used by you know, the Googles, the OpenStreetMap as a base for, for all the um, geographical uh, databases for Google Maps and things like that. Uh, some local authorities also use it as a master record for their bus stop management systems. So it's, a, it's got quite a broad set of uses. So Giuseppe, following some experimental research back in uh, in October 2018 um, that we did at Passenger with um, the data science unit at Bournemouth University, as as Matt said, we've done a lot of work with NATAM in the past, but we started to bring some uh, some work together with with those guys, and and we were sort of looking at how NAPTAN had some potential errors in it, particularly around the bearings, which way some of the bus stops were pointing and how that might impact some of the um, some of the users that were, were seeing those in, in the apps that we were building. We, we started to sort of research as part of that how we might be able to take the reports that we were getting from, from users that things were inaccurate and, and, and automate that across um, the UK data set to see whether that was sort of in the regions that it was being reported or whether that was actually something that was kind of more widespread. Before we go into that, could you tell us a bit about some of the work you're doing at the DFT on NAPTAN, and particularly around the, the ownership of, of that data set and the processes around it? Oh, I love that question. I mean, it, it's very complicated to begin with. So DFT plays a leading role in everything having to do with NAPTAN, uh, but NAPTAN is fundamentally a collaborative effort. So uh, DFT, there are at least three teams involved in, in what we call the management of, of NAPTAN. Uh, to begin with, NAPTAN is, is formed by different elements. So on one side of it, so one part of it is the data standard. So it's a data model 
based on something bigger called Transmodel. I'm not going to get into details about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also data exchange format, which is basically an XML schema explaining how to share information about transport concepts, I would say. And then there's a data process, and the data process involves a number of stakeholders. So we, we run a central service to aggregate data that is actually generated and sent to us by local transport authorities or their representatives. So some local transport authorities will have a function, an internal function to send us their data. Some others will use a company uh, to do that. There's a variety of, there's an ecosystem actually of tools around NAPTAN. So that's the way it works. LAs provide data, we put that data together and we publish it. My team at DFT is sort of um, the service owner for anything having to do with NAPTAN. So we took ownership of this last year. Uh, and we administer it. We respond to query. Uh, we, you know, we, we are working to investigate the um, data quality in Napton, and we engage with the with the market in it. I mean, last week I was on this group called PITIC. So it's a it's a group of people who are working in the space of transport information. Uh, I'm talking with you guys. There's a number of other companies we we're engaging with. So yeah, uh, at the moment there's a service which is run by our digital service. And that's pretty much the process. Uh, and we're doing some work to uh, refresh that service. That's really interesting, Giuseppe. I mean, going back to what we discovered, um, which was around the, the fourth, you know, the, the, I think there's about 400,000 bus stops throughout the UK, somewhere in that region. And, and the automation that we put in around the checking of those bearings gave us a, a reading of around kind of 4% of inaccurate data. The biggest frustration, I suppose, from our side was, as a tech company, was really not understanding how we could go about um, updating that. Um, so we'd kind of done this research, we'd done this piece of work as a tech company that uses it, that puts it into apps that has this customer-facing quality check, um, and that we didn't know the process around how that would work. I mean, how is how is Napton now? How has it evolved over the last couple of years since we did that work uh, in terms of some of those things? So first of all, let me praise the work you've done because it's, it's really brilliant. Uh, and, and, and to be honest, it, it gives us a lot of interesting ideas on how to, to work together with, with the sector to, to fix NAPTAN. Uh, but one step back, I, I had to make one step back, uh, which is about, once again, NAPTAN was created for a specific purpose and that specific purpose it is no more. Uh, and things have evolved over time. Uh, I mean, if you work with Napton, you're probably aware that there are some very old web pages where, uh, on a CSS style that hasn't been seen uh, any refresh probably for 10 years. So support was kept to the bare minimum because there's clearly a duty for the DFT to maintain a data set, but there wasn't any thinking into what should we do with this in the future. And things changed when, when my team was created. I mean, part of the reason for creating my team was actually to bring thinking around all things we do with data DFT. And Napton was clearly one of the things on, on the radar. Uh, I have to say, I, I've been a data geek before, and I've always been quite keen on Napton. Napton, to me, is a great example of a national data set, uh, where there's a process, as much as it is, you know, as I said, a convoluted process. So there wasn't much work done to it, but a lot of tension towards doing some work with it. So I'd say at the moment, uh, as we you know started taking over it, uh, we also start engaging with the market. We also engage with a number of teams at DFT itself, like the bus open data team, which you know, are uh, heavy users of, of Napton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're starting to ask the question. So, of course, there has been little evolution over time, uh, but something we want to explore is actually how to make sure that we can keep Napton evolving over time. 
And once again, Napton was created for journey planning, for our own provided journey planning. It's something we no longer provide. And therefore we need to ask the question, what's the current user need for Napton and how we adapt it to emerging user needs? Giuseppe, given the implications of uh, errors in the data, one of the most important aspects would be how to get those corrected. As I mentioned before, you know, we, we, we're, tech, we're a tech company that, that builds apps for users. One of the most important things for us was really how we resolve that. Apps in app stores have a, a rating system, which is pretty brutal, to be quite frank. And, and when, when data presented isn't accurate, users of, that, of those apps are, are scathing. And I think there's an, almost an implication where one particular, you know, where bits of data are inaccurate, that the whole thing is not as good as it can be. Um, so when you're not the owner of that data as, a, as an app provider, an app developer, or a tech, technology company, you need a, some published guidance on where you go and how you get that resolved so that it's at the standard that you need it to be to deliver your product and your service. You know, in the work that you're doing, you know, what are you working on that might encourage this transparency around ownership and governance and almost uh, to some degree an SLA around the quality of the data that is being provided as open data? So let me first talk about Naptan, uh, and I'll give you a, a sort of a civil service answer, which is we're working on it. Um, so up to now, <laughs> Naptan didn't have a, a, any form of real engagement with, with the wider transport sector. There were, there were actually some bits of engagement with local transport authorities. We, we have a number of uh, contacts in, in local authorities. Whenever there's a problem with it, we, we go back to them. But probably we need to make that broader. Now, uh, one thing I didn't say is that we are working on a refresh of the Napton service, a redevelopment of it, thanks to the stick of legislation. So in, in September, there's new accessibility legislation that will come into force and create a set of new requirements for, for government websites. So that's given us a, a bit of an impetus to doing a redevelopment of Napton. So at the moment, we're running a Napton refresh project to get, together with our digital service. So we just finished a discovery. We're going straight into alpha, and the plan is first of all to you know to bring what it is of Napton today into the twenty first century. So first of all, onto um, our current uh, website styling, content guides, you know, comply with accessibility regulation, and also bring the current platform into the um, so the current Napton platform into the current set of services run by our digital services, so that it can be maintained and supported as an ongoing service. As part of that, however, we also starting to ask questions to the sector as to what's the best way forward to engage with them and how do we get things fixed. Now, as I said, there is a complex set of stakeholders uh, that, that form the Napton ecosystem. Many local authorities have their own data quality assurance processes. Uh, there's a number of companies out there who provide uh, data quality tools, software, services to local authorities. And on the other hand, we also are working on data quality for Napton because we have some requirements in that respect. So one thing we're doing at the moment as part of this refresh is also to investigate the data quality of Napton. We will be re releasing some of, of our data quality checks as an open source library to encourage the, uh, uh, the, the sector to, to do their own checks, but also to potentially support the market with some extra thinking around how to provide a baseline of data quality checks. So that's about Naptan. Um, you were asking, however, about you know transparency, ownership, and governance, and I think that's a 
broader problem. You know, it, it, it's about open data in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's important to see, to look at where data has been successful, what it achieved and how it, you know, it was made successful. My, my current obsession in that space is what I call data curation, which is basically taking care of data sets like libraries do with their collection. So that means having accurate records on the provenance of data. It means having you know, the right policies to manage those items effectively and safely. Uh, and it means putting particular items on display for a specific reason, you know, for when there's an exhibition or uh, through a common thread or through common discussion. So doing this with data basically translates into thinking a bit more about why the data is created, why it is needed, and what are the users doing with the data. So basically, it's not just about creating structures that do governance. And in the civil service, we're very good at creating boards and committees and all of that. I mean, we have good reasons to do so. Uh, but at the same time, it's also about linking all the structures to the user need and making sure that you know the process is solid, but also enabling engagement and innovation. So that, that's pretty much my overview of how to deal with, with data sets like this. That, that certainly makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, this idea of curation and, and showing how it's being used, I think would inherently improve the the, the understanding of, of what's being done with the data when it's being input and, and being managed. And I think you're right to a, a large extent that, you know, without sight of that, the, the people that are responsible potentially at the local authority level for inputting this data, without seeing how it's being used at the sharp end of, of innovation, then there's, there's always a chance that perhaps the, the importance of, of the role that they are doing is not necessarily seen as as important as it, as it really is. And, and that's, that's interesting. Yeah, for some of them, it's going to be a burden. But, uh, you know, as we are engaging with local authorities, we're actually finding out that there's many um, officers in local authorities who are inc- incredibly passionate about data and about data quality. Uh, and there are questions. I mean, they've been asking us questions around NAPTAN. You know, NAPTAN now uh, is meant to include, for example, information about accessibility. And different local authorities have different processes and different opinions about how to do that. And I think that's fascinating. I mean, this is a data set. And at the same time, it's providing an insight into how local authorities run the services for, for their own population. And I think that, that's very important. That's an interesting one as well. I think the, the geographical differences and, and the requirements that different areas have. Uh, I'd be interested to hear about how you build that into a, a kind of a national standard, because you know, we've seen that ourselves. You know, not every region is the same in terms of accessibility in Scotland, perhaps, you know, compared to some areas in, in England. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There are huge differences in how, for example, local authorities like to have the name of the stop displayed on, on uh, you know, on a bus stop, which is one of the way NAPTAN is being used in, in, in the country. There are also different ways in which uh, different local authorities group together bus stops, for example. So, you know, it, it, I had this interesting question with, uh, a few colleagues at DFT as to can we use NAPTAN to identify bus stations? Well, bus station is a concept that makes sense in, in common parlance, but which doesn't have a, a, a strong definition in, in the data. So, you know, my question is, should we have that strong definition in the future? Uh, but how a person perceive what the bus station is might be different from, uh, you know, from local authorities to local authorities. I mean, in London, for example, we have uh, you know, something like uh, the coach station, like the Victoria coach station, which is a big coach station. It's not a bus station. For some people, the difference between a coach station and a bus station uh, is meaningless. Uh, if you're an operator, it's actually very meaningful. So we need to think about different uses and the language used to uh, to explain these concepts to uh, professional data users, but also to uh, the end users. 
Uh, I think that's really interesting, uh, Giuseppe. Uh, I think you're right. It comes down to that sort of local level and about what people, what meaning people give to the data. It's going to make this a very interesting problem to solve for you. And I personally cannot wait to see how you solve it. <laughs> but when we first asked you to come on the podcast, you referenced NAP, N-A-P. Now, that's an acronym. I'm going to be honest. I had to go and look up and I thought I knew them all. So for anyone who didn't know, could you perhaps tell us what is NAP? Is, is that different? And where does it come from? So uh, it's interesting because one of the criticisms we have is that are you calling everything with, you know, starting with the word, with the letters NAP? So no, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> NAP is uh, an acronym that means National Access Point. And it is a something that derives from a, a European Union directive. So there is okay. a European Union directive called the Intelligent Transport Systems, uh, which mandated member countries to create a roads metadata catalog to represent things like uh, safety statistics on roads uh, and, and other um, concepts around, uh, around roads. Now, we exited the European Union. Uh, there were questions around whether we should be complying or not with this directive. Um, fundamentally, what we said, however, together with the policy team in charge of, of this project, we said, well, actually, the concept of NAP, regardless of compliance with the directive, is actually quite useful because there is a growing need of uh, data about roads. Uh, and I have to say, this growing need has been just strengthened by the coronavirus crisis, where you know, it was important to access very quickly statistics about usage of road in different areas of the countries, data about pavements, data about cycling lanes. So we, we said, you know what, we should be doing this as a full piece of research. We started with a discovery in Alpha. And the idea is to try and see what, uh, what the user need is for, for roads uh, metadata catalog and evolve it over time. But yeah, fundamentally, just to summarize, it is a catalog of purely metadata about roads, enabling both public sector and private sector players to, I would say, advertise the existence of their data sets, even if the data set is not publicly accessible. Okay, and so the idea behind this is just to create the data set. You haven't necessarily got an end use in mind. You're just creating or cultivating this data set and then putting it out to the market to use and, and innovate with? Yeah, pretty much. But once again, it's literally just about discoverability. So yeah. the idea is that there's, we need to improve the level of discoverability of roads data in the country. And when I say discoverability, that means sometimes just being aware that a certain data set exists. It doesn't mean that the data set needs to be accessible. Of course, I'm a big fan of open data and I will support open data as much as possible. But there are certain data sets that might be owned by you know private companies, which are still useful mm -hmm. to form a view about roads. Uh, and therefore, we are exploring whether uh, the NAP should be a good platform to have records around those data. And, and see how they can be connected to users in the market. So Giuseppe, I mean, in terms of what's included in that catalogue, I mean, we talked a little bit about um, sort of governance and, and curation. I mean, are those are those parts of, of the NAP research or, or the, the NAP platform as well? Uh, it, it, they are. So at the moment, NAP, as I said, we are in alpha. So we just completed alpha. There was a show and tell a few weeks back. We are about to discuss the procurement of beta. And these questions are basically going to be explored by, by Beta. So one key question is how we um, operate this platform, uh, whether we should be us, whether it should be us, a DFT, or whether it should be an external entity. Uh, and part of the discussion is also around how do we perform those you know, curation functions? How do we assess the quality of metadata? Because metadata itself will have to be quality assessed. 
uh, and you know what's the basically the look and feel of the of the service around this. So these are all questions that we we are keen to explore in deep depth. So we talked a little bit about data strategy when we were setting up the podcast, and I think it was uh, it was it was last September when the uh, the DFT spoke about how it was working towards its own data strategy. As uh, as head of data at DFT, can you give us an overview of what having a, a data strategy means, and, and and what did your research reveal uh, up until this point? So data strategy is pretty much two things. So first, um, it's realization that there's a lot of good work happening at, at the DFT, uh, and the need for us to have a coherent approach to bringing all these different war streams together. So some of them would be official statistics, some of them would be you know, the bus open data program. Street Manager, NAP on itself, the NAP, all these things are very good in their own right. Mm -hmm. uh, but we started to work towards the understanding of how they fit in, in a longer term vision of how we, we use and publish data DFT. The second aspect is equally important is, is a growing appreciation that data is probably the biggest enabler of transport innovation in, in, in this time and age. And DFT as a policy department has a role to play to, to facilitate that innovation by helping the sector work with data more effectively. So the strategy basically wants to do that. So part of that is engagement with the community. Part of that is actually learning and you know, understanding how we make policy uh, in, in, in the context of data-driven transport innovation. Would you agree with the statement, future mobility is hindered by current standards, current data standards? But apparently that was a, a phrase that was used by a business development manager, the BSI group. Interesting. Um, I'm a big fan of data standards. Actually, one of my first jobs years ago involved something called HL7, which was a data standard used to transfer medical data and healthcare software. You can't imagine something like geekier than that. But there's always, I think, a risk of falling prey to that famous XKCD comic, you know, where we have 14 standards. Someone comes in saying, let's create a universal standard to cover those 14 use cases. And boom, you ended up with 15 competing standards. So I, I think there's always uh, the key here is understanding the user need. So in transport, there are benefits to representing common concepts like you know timetables, fares, routes. Uh, and clearly, there is a benefit in doing this in a standard way. Now, there are multiple standards covering slightly different angles. So to mention a few, you know, you're aware of transfer change, transmodel, NetX, GTFS, MDS, you know, all, all fantastic acronyms. Uh, but I would say in transport, the proliferation of all the standards hasn't really hindered mobility apps so far. So if anything, it's actually fostered the ongoing debate about, you know, how can we provide better data uh, as an enabler to innovation? So I, I'm not negative about, you know, these competing standards, but of course there is a benefit to say, you know, if, if the same concept is used across a variety of standards, then why not standardizing that concept. And things like, you know, routes can be standardized, things like timetables can be standardized. Uh, it's harder to standardize things, you know, like fares, for example, where there are so many different models. So yeah, I, I think there is an understanding on my side that there isn't a casual standard to cover all current use cases, mostly because these use cases evolve quicker than a standard can be developed. But yes, we can work together to bring some of this concept together. You mentioned there about fares um, and fares not working to a standardized format, which I, I completely agree. It's something that we've been looking at for a very long time is how we structure fare data and how we can build systems that will allow us to work with lots of different operators and not have to rewrite our importer every time and things like that. Are there any other data sets that you think specifically would be good to standardize that are very difficult? 
That's a very good question. So unfair specifically, I, I think there's a very good work being done by the bus open data service team. Uh, and I think you know that that's probably a, a conversation to be had with them. In terms of standardizing data, I, I, I'm not sure. So there was a discussion recently that made me think about standardizing, better standardizing cycling data, for example. Uh, there was a question that came to me about uh, the turning of cycling lanes from advisory into mandatory uh, during the coronavirus crisis. Uh, and there was a question as to, do we have any data set to represent that? And someone told me, well, actually, that concept is represented in a standard way in OpenStreetMap. So I, I went to have a look at that. Uh, and unfortunately, although it is represented in a standard way, there was simply not enough data to make that, you know, statement about the whole country. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's open a question to me about, yes, standardization, but also data availability. And these are two concepts probably need to be discussed together. Because, yeah. you know, if we were to ask the community to, to provide data about, you know, second lane, if, if that's important, then, of course, having a standard will simplify uh, the data collection. And so that, that's important. But at the same time, we need to be you know, careful not to create excessive burden on anyone because otherwise, you know, we'll never see that data as being available. It just goes to show how amazing a tool OpenStreetMap is, though. I mean, to have not realized that particular, you know, data was there or, you know, the framework for it uh, and to go there to find it and just not have enough of the data, but to know that there's a platform there that it could be added to. It does. At the same time, there's clearly a question, especially for, you know, a, a public authority, uh, around you know the authoritativeness of, of data sets uh, and clearly there are different views in the community about what is really an authoritative data set for a number of things so and there are also competing sometimes interests in, in the market about uh, certain data sets and there are interesting different approaches to that so yeah that's probably a question to be explored uh, in its own podcast i would say <laughs> quite possibly just a quick question before we go a question that's more than likely going to be cut out but this is a question that beth really wanted me to ask so beth a marketing manager uh, big on maps and she wanted to know if you have a favorite map because her favorite map is of the what was it tom was it the london uh, underground laid over the roads that it would follow in london yeah, that's the one something like that Ooh, do, you have nice. a, do you have a favorite map <laughs> oh i have so many i mean maps are <laughs> Crazily nice. So actually, let me just blow my own trumpet for now. I did this crazy thing using OpenStreetMap of basically coloring the roads by the name. So, you know, you color something called the road in pink, something called the street in green, something mm -hmm. called a lane in another color, and you get this, you know, nicely looking geeky map. Now, a guy I know called Duncan Gear, who's a data journalist, took that map and he filmed his plotter drawing that map live. And I thought that was just the most mesmerizing things I've ever seen. Hypnotic, like seeing a plotter drawing a map live. So it was good. But aside from the personal stuff, I, I like a, an entire category of maps called the figure ground maps. So it's when you actually, it's not a map. It's basically just uh, a picture of all the built spaces in an area. So you have all the building shapes. Uh, and what you have is basically this sort of comparison be between what's black, so the buildings, and what's white, which is basically the, the, the space. And it's something both really aesthetically pleasing, but also pretty informative about the density of, of, of buildings in an area. Brilliant. Thank you so much for answering that question and all of the others. Uh, really appreciate you giving us some time today to sit down and talk about this information. Hopefully we'll have you again on again in future, perhaps. 
Um, but for now, thank you so much well, for joining us. Thank you very much. Next week, we'll be taking a break, but we'll be back for another series in a few weeks' time. We'd like to massively thank everyone who took part in Series 1 of Making Passenger. It was a great opportunity for us to learn from experts from many different pieces of the transport technology puzzle. We hope the podcast has contributed in some way to keeping the conversation going during lockdown. It's certainly taught us more than we ever thought we'd know about podcasting. Questions, comments or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Please do tweet us at Making Passenger. And if you want to know what we're up to between now and when you next hear from us, do sign up for our newsletter at discoverpassenger.com. Until next time. 